Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you change your face, do you change who you are? I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. And today, we're going to have a conversation with Sharona Pearl, the author of a book that looks at, takes apart, and explores the question of the relationship between face and self in really, really exciting and really beautifully written ways. So Sharona and I talked about her recent book, Face On, Face Transplants and the Ethics of the Other, that just came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2017. And what the book does is it uses the case study of face transplant surgery, um, both the history of this surgery in the 21st century and also cultural and media studies around and about that surgery to open up some really important and really high-stakes questions about the nature of identity, the relationship between face and self, what it is to know oneself and also to know the other, and all kinds of related issues. Now, it does this by taking us through a number of cases that are located in television, they're located in film, in philosophy, in newspapers, and much, much more. And so the study itself is not only, I think, a really nice model of how to integrate very different kinds of media in telling a coherent and consistent story, but also a model in really sensitively and generously incorporating and working with not only the work of other scholars and Sharona, as you'll hear also in the conversation, in the book is very, very generous about um, acknowledging and really cultivating those collaborations that come from the work of scholars who um, have inspired us, but also uh, generosity around the work of and the being of and the self of and the humanity of the people that she's writing about as people, right? And so it's an extraordinarily generous book. It's beautifully written. It's really thoughtful. Um, and it's just um, it's just great, as I started with. So I'd like to leave you with that and just thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoy this one. I really enjoyed this one. And I really really hope you get your hands on a copy of the book. Now, one of the reasons for the latter is that, as you'll hear us talking about at the beginning, there's a set of illustrations or images in the book that um, really, if you choose to look at them, they will meaningfully impact how you read the book. And if you choose not to, that's also a meaningful impact. But you're asked to make that choice. Um, And Sharona herself made a really conscious choice about how to deal with and how to include images in the book. And so you'll hear us talking about that in a moment. Um, But the book is very much a material object as well as a purveyor of ideas. And that really comes out in the thoughtfulness about the form. Okay, so with that, I will leave you to it. Thank you. And here we go. I'm here today to talk with Sharona Pearl about her new book, Face On, Face Transplants and the Ethics of the Other. Welcome, Sharona, to the New Books in STS podcast. I'm so excited to have the chance to talk with you today, and I'm really, really excited about the book. Um, So thank you, and I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks for having me, Carla. This is really exciting. So let's get started with the big traditional question. Sharona, how did you come to the field? And specifically, what brought you to the history and cultural studies of science and medicine? It all starts in Canada, actually. It's <laughs> a very Canadian things. story. Uh, so for some Americans might not be aware of this, but in Canada, at least when I was in high school, a Bachelor of Science was a more valuable degree than a Bachelor of Arts. And in my private Jewish high school, if you showed any aptitude towards science at all, you were going to be a doctor. <laughs> No, that was just the way it was. And you had to commit pretty early around grade 10 to take the science elective. So, of course, I was not bad at science. So I got 
pretty heavily pushed in that direction. And I applied because you have to apply directly to your major to a biology and chemistry joint degree. And I remember I was sitting and slogging through my calculus homework and my chemistry homework and my biology homework. And I was taking a class with an amazing professor named Arthur Haberman called Forms of Fantasy. It was my one elective. And we had all these wonderful novels to read and these fabulous films. And I remember thinking, oh, I just want to get through this math so that I can have fun and read. (laughs) And it was like this aha moment. Oh, my God, I could do that all the time. That could actually be the classes that I take. But I was still really intrigued by why this one degree was more valuable than the other. And I thought, that's actually something I want to think about. I want to spend time reflecting on how that value and priority is made. And I discovered you can do that. So I went to York University as an undergrad and they had this major, you had to double major with it called science, technology, culture, and society. It's since morphed into something else. And I thought I get to do exactly that. And at the same time, I get to read and enjoy what I read. So that's how I came to the field as a whole. That's how I discovered it existed. My interest then got more honed over time, really not so much in in my undergraduate degree. But once I was in grad school, I discovered I was a little obsessed with fuzzy boundaries, these moments of uncertainty, things that maybe were counted as legitimate knowledge, maybe not the things that were weird and strange. And that's essentially what I've devoted my career to studying, these moments of transition around the production of what counts as valuable knowledge. Awesome. And that moment um, that you mentioned of realizing, hey, I like to read. Maybe I should do that. I had one of those moments in geek camp in high school. I was not smart enough, um, as you are, to, uh, to act on it until many years later. But since we're talking about body modification today, I'll mention that my first and only tattoo marks that moment. Um, and we can talk about that another time. Oh, wow. And I will say one more thing, which is they didn't make it easy to leave the sciences because I was I was doing pretty well. I'd won some awards. So I had to have all these meetings with various administrators to explain why I was switching my major, which of course only fueled the fire for me. Why are they doing this to me? I just want to read. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the book. Um, so I'll, I'll say a little bit about the book and then kind of ask you to talk about it. The book we're talking about today looks very closely at facial allotransplantations, commonly known as as face transplants. The book is about, among other things, um, and this is in the words of the book, the stakes for changing the face and the changing stakes for the face. And there's so much else um, that we're going to talk about in the hour to come. But Sharona, um, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the project? What brought you to face transplants specifically and to the decision to write a book-length object about this? Sure. Sure, Carla. Thanks. It actually started as a chapter of another book. How many times does that happen, right? So I thought, and and this is just maybe a bit of a public service announcement, the thing about a second book is that it's kind of hard to figure out what a second book project is. Your first book is usually your dissertation. And there's a huge amount of oversight and whole teams of people devoted to making sure you get that thing done. You're on your own with your second book. And (laughs) I had a number of failed second book attempts because they were just the wrong size objects. So they became articles or edited volumes and that kind of thing. So face transplants were meant to be a chapter in a book I thought I was writing about patients who become celebrities because of their illness. So not people who are celebrities who become patients, but people whose illness defies them in some ways. That so that they become well-known, like uh, Henrietta Lacks or uh, these wonderful sisters from the 19th century that Alison Winters called the prima donnas of the magnetic stage, the O'Key sisters. So this, the face transplant patients were going to be one chapter in this book about how media and medical diagnoses collude to create celebrities out of patients. And the way that that creates a strange situation for the doctor actually has an investment in keeping these patients, if not ill, then in their state of ideal patienthood. Uh, It turns out, though, that face transplants were, in fact, not a chapter. 
but a book length object or maybe many book length objects. So when I dove into the research for this, I thought, oh, my God, this is it. And it was a really nice transition from my first book, which was also about faces in the 19th century. I could use the skills and tools that I had developed and apply them to a modern place and also expand myself methodologically. So that's how it was born. Awesome. So the writing style of the book for me was really, really exciting. And it's one of the things I really love about the book. And I do really love the book. And I'll say that right um, here at the outset for listeners. Thank you. So the writing style, Sharona, it's vibrant, it's engaging, and it's whatever the opposite of dry is. Um, that's what the writing style is. So Hopefully you... it's not wet. No, no, it's, it's fabulous. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that decision to write in the voice that you did um, for the second book? Absolutely, Carla. And it really was a decision. Partly it had been something that had been ruminating with me for a while. I remember after somebody had read my first book and that person said, you know, I really enjoyed it and I really got into it, but it's so different from the person that you are. It has a voice, but I'm not sure that it's your voice. And that started me thinking about that disconnect. And I thought, I want to tell the story. It's a story about people. I want to tell it in my voice, but it can be really hard to locate what that voice is. And I really do credit a couple of pieces. When I, a couple of years, a few years ago, I started doing a lot of other freelance writing, blogs, magazine articles, that piece. And it's a really different style. And it's in a way a kind of funny one because you have all these editors who are used to working with academics for popular pieces, say things like, listen, it's going to be edited more heavily. Don't be offended. <laughs> God, either all academics are actually terrible writers or just incredibly sensitive. And I say, no, 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 I'm good. I, I like being edited. I, I like this process. It makes it feel collaborative. But also, it really helped me find my voice. And I credit some wonderful editors, Molly Tolsky over at Kveller, Rob Jennings over at Real Life Mag, for helping me understand the balance between readability and still being quite penetrating and hard-hitting. But also, I just wanted to try something new. I thought, we talk all the time in the humanities about letting the problem dictate the methodology, having our writing style reflect the story and narrative and claims we're trying to make. And I thought, what would that really look like? Mm -hmm. I love it. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. So we've talked about the words of the book a little bit. Let's also talk about the images before we dive in to the chapters. Now, you talk in chapter one, actually, about your decision about how and whether to show images, given the nature of not only the topic, but also the nature of your approach to the topic and your kind of um, your positioning, right, with regard to the topic and the people involved. So all this is to say the images and decisions about the images, Sharona, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. It was really a conundrum for me because obviously the way that people look before and after face transplants are a part of this story and their desire to get face transplants on, in some way is linked to how their faces look after they've had the disfiguring experience or the event that makes them need a face transplant. So on the one hand, I totally understand why that's central and why people want to see them. On the other hand, part of the point here is to think about the dignity of people regardless of what they look like and give people the freedom to be themselves and experience their humanity independent of their, well, maybe not independent of their appearance or, but not strictly tied to it. So I was really torn. And then I got the reviews back. I hadn't initially included any images because I didn't want people to gawk. I didn't want this to seem like a re-exploitation of these people and to put their appearance on display in that kind of way. And both of the reviews both said, you know, I spent all my time afterwards Googling because I was so interested that it almost seemed like a distraction. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that either. And I don't want to make these people invisible. There's a real stake to how they look. So I'm going to give people the option. 
But the third piece of it was also that I had a graduate student assistant who was Rachel Stonecipher, who did a lot of really wonderful work for the book, who was tracking down some of the permissions for the images. And she said to me, you know, I can only do it for about 10 minutes a day, which had never occurred to me because I have a pretty strong stomach. And I thought, wow, some people might actually be repulsed. I don't want to force them to look at these things. So I really didn't know what to do. And then eventually I decided that I would outline these issues around saying it's actually perfectly fine for these people to look the way they look, you know, following Rosemary Garland Thompson's claim that staring is sometimes better than not staring because looking away is a real problem. At the same time, some of some of people might actually be really bothered by the images or feel assaulted by them. And at the same time, recognizing that for some of these recipients, the real dignity and humanity is to be found in not putting their faces on display. So I chose to put them in an index and allowing people to make their own decisions. Great. Thank you. So from its first pages, now that we're kind of diving in, the book mm-hmm. talks about um, a, a kind of key concept that may not be familiar to all listeners. So I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about that right um, at the outset. And this is the idea of an, an indexical relationship between the face and character. Now, since this is such a crucial part of the through line of the narrative, can you talk about that? What does it mean for you and what's important for this project about the idea of an indexical relationship between the face and character? And perhaps um, uh, if you could talk a little bit about how and whether this particular case troubles that idea. So that's really where I started with the book, because as I said, my my first book and my dissertation research was on this idea of physiognomy, the study of facial features and their relationship to character, the idea that how pointed your nose is, is directly tied to some aspect of your character. The extension being that when we look at people, we can actually know something about them. That's the notion of the index, that our faces are somehow not just deeply tied to who we are, but actually revelatory of it. And because of that, there's this really intimate connection, supposedly, between a specific face and a particular person. Your face is not just your face because of biology, but actually because your face is your character. It's the face that you present to the world. We have so many expressions that are embedded in this idea. So, I think that we've always instinctively both felt this to be the case and also troubled it. We don't really believe, right? Or we think we don't really believe that because your cheekbones are this high, you're going to be this kind of person. At the same time, we judge people so much for how they look. And I think that's in part predicated on this long-held, if not always acknowledged notion that faces are indexical to character. And that has all kinds of implications across race, class, gender, ability, age. And what I wanted to do was on its own challenge those beliefs and also think about how face transplant surgery forces us to confront the ways in which we believe it to be true and the ways in which it is not true. Because all of a sudden, one face is not uniquely tied to one person, right? One face can belong to two particular people. And at the same time in this digital age, one person can have multiple faces that are all different expressions of identity. So we're at this moment, I think, of uncertainty. And that's where a lot of the anxiety that initially was unleashed during the first face transplant surgery comes from. But I think we also don't have a resolution yet. And of course, this has also been true around questions of facial manipulation, plastic surgery, so on and so forth. But so much of the narrative around that has been people becoming the person they always were already. That's how makeover television is constructed. That's how so much of the story is told. So the way that that gets parsed around the question of the index is that the index was broken. It was faulty, right? You were given the wrong face. And so in order to become the person you always were, you have to change something. And that kind of made us more comfortable. The face transplant throws that out completely because you're not getting the face you were always meant to get. You're getting whatever's available, if it's unavailable at all. And you may not want it. You didn't want the event that caused your self to need a new face. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think um, a lot of what you just were talking um 
about for us really leads us really nicely into the next chapter, right? And this is a chapter, chapter two, that looks at the history of the relationship between cosmetic surgery and transplants um, and their relationship to to face transplants um, and kind of how we can understand them in conversation. So the chapter places three kinds of manipulation into conversation, makeup, prostheses and surgery. And part of that, in addition to a really interesting conversation about whole organ transplants um, and makeup, is a really careful look at cosmetic surgery. So this is Mm -hmm. kind of what what I want to ask you about as our way into this chapter. You ask, is the difference between facial transplants, uh, surgery and cosmetic surgery, one of degree or one of kind? And one of the really interesting things that comes up here is a consideration of the role of risk, um, mm-hmm. risk and fear in dictating how we think about and practice the relationships between these. So Sharona, can you talk about that a little bit? Cosmetic surgery, face transplants, and how we understand the, the role of risk and fear in shaping these differences and similarities. So I'll start by being just a bit technical and explain that face transplant surgery does entail a great deal of risk, both in the surgery itself, which is intensive, can take anywhere from 15 to 24, 25 hours, uh, is, you know, quite invasive. But then on top of it, and this is a really important point for people to understand, because even as I spend a lot of time critiquing people who are suspicious of the surgery, for not taking into account quality of life and mental health issues. There is a way in which the surgery can take a supposedly well person and make him or her sicker. Because once you have the surgery, you are subjected to a lifetime of immunosuppressant medication, which itself makes you more vulnerable to a host of diseases, and also in and of itself makes you sick. Most immunosuppressants are long-term carcinogenic. So... It's not nothing to get the surgery. You are opening yourself up to a a much greater risk than, say, you would be with traditional cosmetic surgery. However, I don't think that that's what's really at stake in our suspicion or resistance to one as opposed to the other. I think instead, and I get into this in the book, there's a way that cosmetic surgery itself gets framed as either virtuous or gratuitous, right? In the language itself. So cosmetic is, as opposed to other forms of plastic surgery, is something that people want but don't need, right? And that's acceptable if you're not opening up your, yourself up to a certain amount of risk. But even still, there might be some form of suspicion attached to it, but not nearly as much as something like the face transplant, where people really are making themselves quite vulnerable for, from the perspective of some people who are opposed to the surgery, something that's not strictly medically necessary. Now, I think that's actually kind of a trap because it places a really strict limit on the question of what counts as necessary. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to take more seriously and be more expansive around this question of what counts as maybe necessity or maybe even rethinking whether necessity is the framework by which to evaluate certain forms of intervention. And I don't want to undercut the question of risk. I think it's incredibly important to take seriously the power of risk and the the issues that that poses as well. But part of the problem there in parsing it out is that face transplants actually are this funny kind of object. It's not really clear whether they're like plastic surgery or whether they're like whole organ transplants, like heart transplants, lung transplants, because in that case, for the latter, if you don't get the transplant, your body will shut down and die, right? So the risk around immunosuppressant medication and the surgeries is much less than the risk of not getting them. That's not exactly the case necessarily with face transplant surgery. At the same time, it's not quite the same thing as a cosmetic intervention that might be something you really want or maybe feel you need, but doesn't pose the same kind of debilitation if you live without it. So what I think about is how maybe There's real possibility in the face transplant surgery to be far more expansive, both around the relationship between mind and body, 
maybe even the question of the soul, and also to be more expansive around how we configure patient autonomy and maybe even challenging this indexical relationship to liberate the possibilities of thinking beyond the body, which has a whole host of implications, again, for race, class, gender, so on and so forth. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, as we move from here into the next chapter, we move into a chapter, chapter three, that looks closely at cinematic representations of face transplants. And it focuses in particular on three films from the 1960s, all shot post-World War II. And this becomes um, actually really important, all of which involve some important interaction between medicine, capitalism, and identification. So I'll just name the three films and then kind of um, open out into a question. So the first film is The Face of Another. This was a Japanese film from 1966 in which, among lots of other things, the protagonist suffers disfiguring burns on his face and undergoes an experimental procedure involving a highly realistic mask. The second film, called Eyes Without a Face, um, is a French film from 1960. And here, among many other things with lots of consequences, we have a doctor who tries to procure a new face for his daughter. Then we have Seconds, which is a U.S. film from 1966, in which an unhappy suburbanite tries to procure a new identity with the help of of a shadowy corporation. So there are three super fascinating sounding films um, and you talk about them at great length and detail um, in really exciting ways, I think, in the chapter. Now, the chapter asks, among other things, why do these films for so many remain firmly in the category of horror, right? Why are these, what's horrific about these films? Mm -hmm. Um, And you, uh, among uh, many other things, you look at the ways that in each film, what you call acts of radical self-transformation are punished and they're punished with some sort of death, right? There's some sort of death involved. Okay. So as a historian, one of the things that particularly fascinated me about what's going on in this chapter is the way you're connecting what's happening here and what I just described with history specifically. In part, as you argue here, this is about understanding history and about an understanding of history as it manifests in these films in this particular moment. People die, in the kind of words of the book, for trying to rewrite history through rewriting its effects on the face. Faces matter because history and experience matter. So Sharona, um, can you talk a little bit about that in the context of um, what you think is most important and interesting um, that you want us to get out of this chapter? That's a wonderful summary, Carla. Thank you so much. And I want to acknowledge as well the wonderful work of Adam Lowenstein, a film studies scholar, and Dana Pollan, another film studies scholar, who really helps me around the way that I organize my thoughts, because this is my first deep dive into film scholarship. So the three films were very deliberately selected, both because they play towards the questions that I was interested in, but also because, as you pointed out, they're post-World War II in three different countries who had three very different relationships to the war. So the French film really is obsessed with the question of collaboration. What does it mean to be a collaborator to horror and terror? And obviously that's something that in the 1960s through to today, France was really grappling with. And in Japan, the question became, what do you do when you lose face? What is a loss of face? What does defeat mean? And it gets incredibly literalized around the physical loss of a face and how that causes somebody's life to be thrown into this terrible turmoil, but also maybe reveals the person that you always were. And in the United States, with this kind of post-war industrial success story, as you point it out, so much of this has to do with capitalism and money and how do you negotiate the question of technology and inevitability, perhaps? What are the limits of success here? It becomes somebody for whom technology doesn't become the answer in the end. You don't get to try to change yourself without actually by by with the with the effects of technology without actually doing the work to change the person who you are but the punishments around too much radical transformation are really what fascinate me because i think that's a real through line for us even through today connecting our relationship to things like 
plastic surgery interventions, something more dramatic like this kind of piece around actually changing your face. These three films all punish people for trying to change themselves too much. It's almost like cheating. You don't get to do that. You have to make sense of your lot in life. So that how that ties back to all the pieces that you talked about capitalism is that just an easy way to try or a, too much of a shortcut is it are the forces of capitalism something that we need to fight against because they're forcing us into these places that we don't want to be the question of the institution of medicine this again haunting question just because we can does that mean that we should right just because we have the technical capabilities to do all kinds of things when do we put on the brakes that's something that these films are all really obsessed with. What is the ethical violation? And then the other piece being, of course, and why is the ethical violation pe people trying to self-transform? Why is that such a problem, particularly in this particular historical context? And as, I, as you said so beautifully, Carla, it comes back to the question of history. If we change ourselves in this kind of way, is that transformation over time? Is that personal growth or is that an attempt to eradicate the past, right? And that's a quite literal writing on the face to a certain extent. When we change our faces around aging, but not only around aging, are we actually saying that the things, are we trying to make our faces not reflect time? But not only time, but also relationality. If I change my face so I don't look like my mother anymore, Right. And we can leave aside the psychoanalytic <laughs> implications of that. Right. If I change, does that mean that I'm distancing myself from my family, from my relationality, not just my own personal history of trying to rewrite the effects of time, but actually the effects of family and the past? And all three of these films have really complicated relationships to the question of the past because they're very aware that it's the past that got them where they are today. So how much of this is also a critique? How much of our self-transformation in this very physical, corporeal, visceral way, but also this incredibly abstract, nationalistic way, mm -hmm. a critique of trying to rewrite history? Thank you, Sharona. Um, that's also really beautifully put. And I'll say for listeners, even though we'll move on at this point to the next case, there's a lot of analysis in this chapter, um, including a tracing of common themes in the films. And so the chapter talks, among other things, about the significance of the role of medicine and the kind of evil doctor figure in these films, about the dismantling of the family, the stakes for self-transformation, the importance of gender roles um, in the dynamics of these films, and also so what the chapter calls the liminal space of life without a face. And so there's a lot more we could talk about, but we need to talk about the next chapter because this <laughs> is right. This is a really, really interesting case study of the first partial face transplant of Isabel Denoir in 2005. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about here, Sharona. And since part of at least what I take to be what's going on in the chapter is an attentiveness to how we narrativize the story, right? And how that shaped um, how people understood this particular person, um, her experience, and the issues around her face transplant. Can you tell us what you want us to know about Isabel uh, Denoir before we talk a little bit about um, kind of some of the, the stakes and the working out of the stakes of what was happening here? Yes. And before I get too much into that, I do want to know that Isabel Denoir actually died around this time last year. Sorry. No, no, that's, I mean, it, it, I think, uh, and she did, of course, as was to be expected, die as a result of the multiple complications and various cancers that she developed, probably partly because of her immunosuppressant regime. We don't know too much. She died in April, but her family only released the news several months later. They really did want a great deal of privacy, which is understandable given the media storm that they had all weathered after she had her first surgery, which really was in its way a perfect storm. Part of it is the story, as Marjorie Cruven has outlined in her wonderful work, of a failure, a really dramatic series of PR failures, a deep mishandling on the part of the hospital about how to communicate this information that she had gotten the surgery itself. It was really 
a swooping in kind of story. And to set the stage for you, in the United States, the Cleveland Clinic had been very carefully laying the groundworks to get IRB Institutional Review Board ethical permission to do a face transplant for a number of years because the technical capability to do a face transplant had been possible at least since 1998 when the first hand transplant had been performed. But it took until Isabel Denoir in 2005 for the surgery to be actualized. And it really was a case of, on the one hand, the ideal situation coming up, and on the other hand, the kind of perfect storm of media disaster coming together. So again, over in the United States, the Cleveland Clinic has an IRB to do the surgery, but they're waiting. They're waiting because they have this multi-pronged campaign of technical literature that they're going to publish and are very slowly publishing in medical journals. They have stuff that they're going to be putting out in bioethics journals. They have material that they're going to be putting in the popular press to basically prepare people. And they're waiting for the perfect patient who's going to be media friendly, who's going to just make the case for them that this needs to happen because they anticipated that it would be incredibly controversial. Over in France, Isabelle Dunoir passes out because she took sleeping pills. Her dog tries to wake her up, ends up mauling her nose, mouth, and chin to the point of non-recognition. And within six months, she has a face transplant. It's incredibly quick. It's incredibly rushed. The, I, the ethics board approval is murky. So the team had also applied for ethics approval in the hospital in France. It was denied. But the possibility of the triangle, i.e. the nose, mouth and chin, a partial face transplant being done was not ruled out, mm -hmm. which is, again, a pretty limited possibility. But Dinoir comes in. She's she's got this terrible situation. It seems like an ideal possibility. They call in the doctor to lead the team who had been the lead doctor in the first hand transplant, which itself was controversial because the patient ended up rejecting the hand on his own because he was so uncomfortable with having a foreign hand. They thought, okay, so here's a guy who knows how to deal with the media, but maybe the message should have been, here's a guy who doesn't know how to deal with the media because it was such a mess. And then there was a lot of strange potential misinformation. So the team in the first set of um, press conferences said, no, 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 it wasn't a suicide attempt. Dinoir gets up the, in her first press conference and says, oh, sure, it was. But not only that, it turns out that the person whose face she got was a successful suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. So you cannot write this stuff, right? It's the perfect plate for an absolute media maelstrom. The swooping in, the suicide. Is this the right person who has so much potential instability to get this incredibly destabilizing surgery, but not only that, to be the first person to do it, the psychological effects of which are entirely unknown, right? What does it mean to look in the mirror and see the face of somebody else every day of your life? You know, one of the points that I'm really interested in thinking about is what's more challenging or what do we envision to be more challenging seeing the face of somebody else or seeing this no face at all or seeing a terribly disfigured and mauled face mm -hmm. so that's one of the tensions but Dinoir herself really wanted the surgery you know at the same time one of the other pieces is when she first looked herself in the mirror her first words were merci thank you you know so at the same time there was the possibility for a lot of sympathy for her you know, this was a really dramatic and challenging story. And the doctors really hit hard on that. When they first saw her, they knew it had to be done. They had no doubt in their mind. And one of the backdrops is that the story was originally presented as a moral and ethical one. The Cleveland Clinic, who did their surgery, you know, a little while later, really hit home on the medical piece as opposed to the ethical one. And that probably was a better PR move. But we also shouldn't lose sight of the very real human challenges that are at stake and the real possibilities presented by this surgery to help navigate those challenges. 
That's right. Thank you. Um, and um, in addition to talking about this history, right, and talking about the significance of the debates that went into um, an attempt to get ethical approval for the face transplant surgery, you also bring us into a really interesting analysis of journalistic coverage of the surgery, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, um, describe it as Isabel and her doctors being put on journalistic trial mm-hmm. around the world. Um, so mm-hmm. you've already talked, Sharona, I think really eloquently about some of kind of what we can learn from this historical mm-hmm. case, right? And what the stakes are and why it's important. Is there anything you wanted to add specifically about that before we move on, though? Well, I will just highlight that it's important for listeners out there, if you if you are old enough, to cast your mind back to that time. I remember it. Some of you probably remember it as well, hearing about the surgery and just feeling like it was wrong in some way. And the repeated terrain of this is science fiction. And I couldn't put my finger on why it so unsettled me and nor could so many other people. But it was absolutely a media maelstorm. People were criticizing. Every newspaper was writing. Everybody was jumping in. There were so many condemnations. There was so much uncertainty and discomfort. But what I do in the chapter as well is excavate that it didn't have to be that way. If you look closely at the very first articles that were covering the surgery, there was a real openness to the possibilities that the surgery presented. There was a real sense of sympathy for the patient. And there was a very real desire to see and think seriously about what this could do. So one of the things that I'm interested in is thinking about why that switched so quickly to become this sense of condemnation and abstract fear, both on the part of the media, but actually on the part of so many people around the world. It didn't have to be like that. And what I'm really interested in doing, and one of the kind of not so secret goals of the book is to go back to that time of possibility, go back to that time of envisioning what this surgery could do, both for people who get it, but also for our own perceptions of what the face really does. And in fact, doesn't tell us about the people who have them. And speaking of those perceptions, right, and uh, specifically media um, narratives um, that shape those perceptions, this brings us really nicely to chapter five. (laughs) Uh, So chapter five looks at televised representations of face transplant recipients in the U.S. Now, the chapter maps these TV representations onto two formats, at least, right? And there's a lot of Mm -hmm. other kinds of work that the chapter does, medical documentaries and makeovers. Okay, so the way that um, the these sorts of televised narratives around face transplants resemble makeovers are not just interesting and striking. They also turn out to be really important, right? The Mm -hmm. similarities, there are some really important stakes um, Mm -hmm. that for some listeners might be surprising, right? About these similarities. So Sharona, can you talk about that a little bit? What are the ways for you um, that are most important that the makeover um, resembles this and why is that similarity so important? So this takes us back a little bit to something we were talking about earlier, Carla, around what the reasons or justifications for changing yourself are. How do we get comfortable with this vexing or troubling of the index, which is something that we actually rely on in certain kinds of ways. And so much makeover television and This wasn't necessarily my genre of choice, but I spent some time with it. And I'll acknowledge Catherine Sender's wonderful work on on the makeover, uh, which helped inform a lot of my thinking about this. So much of it is devoted to saying there's this mismatch, right? There's the person that you are inside and your face is not reflecting it. So let's fix that. And sometimes that means changing the way you look or a haircut. Sometimes that means and things as dramatic as this television show, The Swan or The Biggest Loser, changing you through much more structured technological interventions. And of course, also, we know that a lot of these don't work or they cause more problems and we can talk about that or not. But I argue after spending a lot of time watching every single piece of television coverage of every single American face transplant recipient that it is set up in precisely the same way, right? The kind of 
framing the question of the big reveal, right? So the lead up, why does this person need this intervention? What is the problem with them leading to how they have earned the right to transform because there's this piece of ritual suffering. You have to either be embarrassed, humiliated, but you also have to show that you are a better person through your desire to change through to the big reveal, what you look like now in front of the cast of family and friends. The television news coverage is essentially exactly the same with the modifications around what the problem is or what the thing to be made over is, right? Because it's fairly clear that people have these disfigurements. You don't have to do a lot of work around showing that there's some sort of quote unquote problem. Although I'll say that the idea that there's a way you're supposed to look also has a history is also a constructed narrative that I get into. It is not entirely clear that bodies are necessarily problematic if they don't adhere to the so, so-called norm. Faces are not necessarily problematic. That's a thing that's constructed. So people have, we hear the stories of how they got their disfigurement or trauma or what the case was. And it's worth noting in France, somebody was born with his condition, right? So it's not always something that's an intervening event, although in the United States up till now it has been. So that's the kind of backstory. The ritual suffering is clear. And again, it's this kind of exactly the same sort of thing. The language is almost exactly the same. There's always this moment where people talk about going to the mall and scaring children, right? Or there's always this moment post-face transplant where they talk about not scaring people or usually children in malls anymore, right? It's this kind of very American thing. But you can see how that hits on these key emotional vectors. So this building up of why people need this piece. But then there also has to be the heroic self-transformation piece where you've earned the right to get this face transplant. So people always, in every single case, essentially, with one exception that I get into, have to talk about how they wouldn't change the event because they've become a better person for it, this kind of nobility of suffering piece. And then and only then do they earn the right and the big reveal, again, it's the same kind of thing. Here is what these people look like now. And it matters. It matters a lot because this, again, potentially incredibly radical surgery that could really challenge us to reframe our own biases and assumptions about what appropriate faces should look like and what the link between face and character is, is rendered this incredibly conservative story of people yet again making themselves over to look the way that we think they should look. That is the underlying story beneath makeover television, and it becomes the story around how face transplant recipients are packaged. And look, it makes it more palatable, right? We don't have these debates anymore, partly for this reason and for a number of other reasons as well, but it also is a real loss because it's not just about becoming who people want you to be. There are also other kinds of practical consequences, right, that the chapter outlines. So you talked a little bit about the importance of um, the U.S. context Mm -hmm. um, in some uh, ways in this case. And the specifically U.S. context also becomes really important in other ways. So the U.S., as you show us here in the chapter, is the only country where recipients of facial transplant surgery need a private source of funding. And right. as a result, this actually becomes a gendered story. As, this, mm-hmm. as the chapter tells us, right, in the words of the chapter, women make better makeover television. And this mm-hmm. turns out to be likely responsible for the greater number of women recipients of the surgery in the U.S. relative to elsewhere in the world. Um, So that's actually, for me, that was a really surprising um, Mm -hmm. and really powerful connection that takes the significance of this resonance with makeover television into the realm of, wow, this actually um, could determine who gets this and who doesn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, Um, absolutely. So in addition to that, just um, super briefly, what I wanted to ask you um, if you had any thoughts about is the significance of the military here. Mm-hmm. So the chapter pays special attention, right, um, to the significance of military involvement, both in funding the surgeries and also um, in associated research. So Sharona, for you, what's most important for us to understand about that? Well, 
to flush it out just slightly more, it turns out that aside from the one of the very first surgeries, the very first surgery in the United States, the military has funded every single other face transplant in the United States. And they're really invested in this for obvious reasons to a certain extent. There are a whole host of people who suffer loss of face and other kinds of disfigurements who are fighting for this country abroad, particularly around improvised um, IEDs, you know, improvised explosive devices. So the military has a big investment in figuring out what to do with people who lose their faces, and they've been funding it. And I don't want to sound too cynical because I have nothing but the most respect for people who are putting their lives on the line. As I say in the book, while the military itself is often controversial and uh, the United States engagements in wars might be controversial, the very human costs absolutely ought not to be. And veterans deserve everything and much more than they get in in this country, I'll just say. But the piece of it there is that the funding of the military does a lot of work to make this procedure more acceptable to us. Because once again, like makeover television or the makeover television format, which takes the surgery and makes it into something palatable or more understandable for us, neutralizing the potentially radical spaces, so too does the fact that this is being done, if not necessarily immediately on wounded veterans, for wounded veterans. So the problem of a wounded soldier is an incredibly significant one, as Carolyn Marvin has outlined in her wonderful work, because soldiers are doing this work for developing national identity. And soldiers who return just enhance the question of patriotism and national identity through their service, through the sense of victoriousness. Wounded soldiers wound that notion. They present the specter of loss. They present the ugliness and the messiness and the trauma and the terror and the challenges and the problems. They puncture national identity. If we can fix them, then the face transplant surgery doesn't become this freaky science fiction kind of intervention. It becomes a solution to a problem of national identity and national pride. Great. Sharona, thank you so much. Um, now, as we move from here into or toward the conclusion of our conversation, we also mm-hmm. move into the conclusion of the book. And there is so much that I would love to talk with you about here really for like another couple hours. And I'm not just saying that, right? This, there's so much richness happening here in this conclusion. So here, among other things, you talk about what's at stake for thinking about or rethinking the relationship between face and self. And there's lots of ways um, that this actually plays out and there's lots of things going on here. So I'm going to start um, by asking you to talk a little bit about one of the Um, kind of theoretical moves that you make here. So one of the most important theorists um, that emerges from the pages of the book, uh, just to uh, lay this out there for listeners, is French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. Um, You talk about his work um, in ways that are really, really powerful here. Um, In addition to other things you say, I just want to quote some sentences here that for me were extraordinarily powerful. Ethics emerges from the connection with a real person, right, in his work. There's no ethical self except in the encounter. There's no self except in the obligation to the other. The encounter with the other is generative of the self. There's so much to think about and talk about. Um, right? <laughs> so given this, right, and given the centrality of Levinas's work for thinking about and with faces, you ask here, um, or rather you ask in the third chapter, but it points to here, what does does an interpersonal ethics look like without a face-to-face relationship or with a relationship where the status and the um, role played by the face is, is so um, unstable here or troubled or complicated or whatever you want to say? So for you, Sharona, can you talk about the ways that um, Levinas's work in particular both is impacting how you're thinking here in this last chapter and also vice versa, right? So how the project has helped you or made you rethink your connection to his work on the face? So the conclusion was really hard for me to write, partly because, as I say at the outset, I don't have a nice synthetic solution. I can't solve the problem of our relationship to faces and the status of the face and what we do with facelessness and the really terrible ways in which we deny humanity to people who 
lack faces or are disfigured or in some way abled other than the traditional ways. I don't know. But a lot of people have thought about it in really moving and beautiful ways. And I really find the work of Emmanuel Davinas just incredibly moving and incredibly generative because he is so invested in the fact that ethics arise through the face-to-face encounter. And that is wonderful and powerful. But what do you do if that person doesn't have a face? That was my starting question. And as I dove more deeply into loving us, I understood that it was entirely the wrong question because for loving us, the, the encounter with the other, the face-to-face has to be a looking that's so deep, ideally, that you don't even recognize the color of the other person's eyes. So face becomes this kind of abstraction or stand-in for just looking and relating to the other. But that doesn't mean just because I got it wrong doesn't mean I got it wrong in a way because the fact that we think of the face as this kind of incredibly corporeal thing isn't going to go away just because Levinas said well but true looking means you don't recognize the color of the other's eyes like that's great how do you do that right I don't know (laughs) lots of people don't know so I tried to think very seriously about the ethical system that Levinas proposes and Think that through its logical conclusion, which is to say, okay, so it doesn't matter if the other doesn't have a face or it shouldn't matter, but yet it does. It has, and it will continue to do so. So what can we learn from the fact that the face does become this way in which we encounter the other, whether or not Levinas meant it to be so? And that's really became the jumping off point for the rest of the chapter, which is kind of a a rabbit hole through my own personal (laughs) mind and challenges and experiences. So if you want to get to know something about me, you know, (laughs) chapter and we can sit and have a coffee and anyone out there who wants to be my therapist can, but (laughs) it really became a way to say, okay, we need a new system. Our whole system of relationality is based on this moment of the face-to-face, not just because of the potentialities of the face transplant surgery and the ideas of radical hybridity. And I go into some people, I think, practice this more or less effectively, but also because we live in a world where the face-to-face is mostly and not at all maybe our primary mode of interaction. And in some ways, that's always been true, right? I'm not naive. I understand history. This isn't technologies are interventions, but they're also often gradual. But we're really in this moment now, I think of great possibility, where maybe we can actualize this thing that I don't know how to do, but maybe collectively we can, where we look and encounter the other. And we actually can see into them without being so mired to the index of the face. Mm And you talk here in a really exciting, what for me is a really exciting way about the possibility of bringing together Levinas with what you call the kind of Deleuzean subjectivity that allows for individuality through constant change, right? And that understands the self to be constantly in a process of becoming. You ask here, what might an ethics of the ever-changing face be? And the chapter takes us through um, kind of the uh, examples of online contexts right avatars it also takes us through as as i think you were just alluding to um, a number of artists and figures who have practiced kind of public performances of what you call facial and bodily manipulation right including orlan um, who i i went off to google um, and, <laughs> yeah. and spent about half an hour doing that including michael jackson joan rivers and others um, so there's a lot of really rich discussion going on here now but as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, Serna, I just want to ask you perhaps as a final question before we move to our close um, to talk a little bit about something that you mentioned here in the conclusion. Now, this has already come up, I think, in different ways over the course of our conversation, but just to ask if you have anything to add, you talk about the ways um, or you talk about the fact in the conclusion that over the course of research for the book, there are some really important ways that your own thinking about the meaning mm-hmm. of the face and its indexicality has changed, right, as a result of this project. So is there anything that you'd like to say as a way of kind of bringing us to our conclusion about that and about that change in terms of your own research process? The face is an incredibly personal thing. And, you know, 
I think when we do any academic project, there's always the struggle, if we're being honest, between our own kind of motivations. Uh, a friend of mine in grad school once said that every dissertation is therapy. And I thought, oh, no, that's totally wrong for me, you know. And then I wrote my chapter on the Jewish nose. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> totally wrong, except not really at all, you know. And uh, and that was so much more at stake here, because one of the things that I, I want to do in the book, and it's a tricky balance, is take seriously lived experience and embodiment. Our bodies do matter. They matter so much, and they help shape us and frame us in ways that are not just problematic, but also incredibly meaningful. And again, when you're thinking about critical race studies, critical disability studies, critical gender studies, I'm invested in not erasing embodiment and lived experience. How do you put that beside these kind of radical possibilities that I'm raising about not being limited by our bodies, looking past the face, you know, and I think my own thinking around that has changed, both in terms of how I experience my own physical body and my own relationship to it. But again, the personal aspects of what's important to me. And that's why I started by saying the face is so personal, because it turns out it hits everything that matters to me. And I get that, or maybe not everything, so many of the things that matter to me. You know, So how does my own bias as a historian of science play into this? How does my own bias as a Jewish woman play into this? How does my own bias as a person who's really just trying hard to be ethical in the world play into this? The face actually touches on all of these pieces. And my own thinking has changed. And, you know, on the one hand, I think that's a real triumph, maybe, of the scholarly process. On the other hand, sometimes I wonder if I haven't confused myself a little bit. (laughs) Or, but that's not necessarily a lack of progress, right? I feel like yeah. increasingly the process of becoming an adult is increasingly a process of confusion. And maybe that's not <laughs> a bad thing, right? Maybe uh, that's no, not I, a bad thing. No, I agree. And I will say this. I think, I think also one of the things that's maybe confusing, but one of the clear conclusions that I come to is that we are in a moment of possibility, right? So it's confusing because the battle lines haven't been drawn yet and the victory haven't been necessarily made yet, but I want us to embrace it. I want us to say, okay, there's something here. There's something happening as we live in this world of incredible political turmoil. And as even as our awareness rises about the challenge, say that people of color face due to structural oppression and systemic racism, even as there are real gains around gender, and that only highlights the ongoing losses and struggles for women and both cis and trans women, queer, queer women, queer of color women, you know, as all of this is happening, I think that we need to also focus on the awareness and use awareness as a place for possibility. What does it mean to encounter the other ethically? And how does face figure into that? Great. So Sharona, there's so much more that we could talk about, Um, but now that we're at um, the conclusion of our conversation, is there anything that didn't come up or that we didn't have time for that you'd particularly like to mention for listeners before we close? Just that while I might seem incredibly suspicious in some places in the book, somewhat cynical around the machinations of power at play here, the motivations of doctors, the motivations of various other people, I want to acknowledge both the tremendous challenges faced by people who are differently abled, people who are struggling with various different things, people who have undergone all kinds of traumas and, you know, are trying to deal with a system that simply does is not set up for those kinds of models. I want to acknowledge the challenges that they face, the courage that a lot of people have shown. I also want to acknowledge the, I think, really quite notable and moving contributions and labors of the doctors who have worked really hard and fought really hard and have been tremendous advocates for their patients. So I do want to say that there's a lot of real humanity here, and we don't want to lose sight of that, even as we can become theoretically sophisticated and we can be analytical. There is so much humanity and there are so many voices, and that matters so much. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you (laughs) currently inspired by and working on? What's your research now? 
I thought I was inspired by uh, faces. I am. So on the one hand, I am writing the third book in the face trilogy, and it's called Changing Faces. And it's about the role of facial prosthetics and makeup on film and how they communicate characters. So on the one hand, it's a history of makeup and facial prosthetics. On the other hand, it's an analysis of when one character plays multiple roles, how do we know which care, which role is being played at one time when um, multiple roles are being, multiple characters are playing run role, all these different kinds of pieces, thinking about, you know, the history of prosthetics as acting as a character in film. And the point of the project as a way is to think about precisely this conflict between lived experience, embodied experience, and fluidity, the possibilities of change. So it looks like typecasting, casting against type, experiments, bending, different kinds of gender and race roles. That's one project. And I'm, you know, well in the works on it. I've got a couple of chapters underway, but I did, as we do, get completely sidetracked by something else. And I'm going to talk about that for just one second with your indulgence. It's not about faces. It is about bodies. It's really about bodies on the line. When I was watching the news coverage this summer in the wake of the most recent shootings and sets of violence and police shootings. And then I would, I would watch the coverage of it. And I got really struck by how survivors of victims of police shootings in particular, survivors of color of police shootings were asked if they forgave the people who killed their family members. And I thought, that's crazy. That is a crazy question to ask. And it became so resonant of survivors of sexual violence also being asked to forgive their assaulters. And that's something that comes up in this book as well around this question of nobility of suffering. There's always a, a piece of, you know, when people who've lost their faces due to um, partner domestic violence, they're always asked if they, you know, forgive and have moved on. So there is that connection. I thought, God, that is so crazy. And I became really interested in the power of apologies and forgiveness and who gets asked to forgive and how it often, the kinds of forgiveness that we ask for women of people of color serves as this disempowering move designed to have them remove their own right to vengeance and anger and how that plays out, what role the media plays in creating or furthering that dynamic of disempowering forgiveness. So I'm working on that right now. I'm creating an archive of mediated forgiveness requests. And I'll ask any listeners who want to get in touch with me to help me because I'm going to create this open source archive. I'm teaching a graduate seminar on this topic right now. And I think it's going to become a really exciting project. Both of those are really exciting projects. Um, So best of luck with that, Sharona. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks for taking time to talk about this book when you're in the process of these other projects. It's really been a pleasure. The book is awesome. Congratulations. And thank Thank you so much. This was so great. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us and catch us again next time. 